Eternal God, in the reading of the scripture, may your word be heard. In the meditations of our hearts, may your word be known. And in the faithfulness of our lives, may your word be shown. Amen. Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis, chapters 1 through 2, verse 4. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was without shape or form. It was dark over the deep, over the deep sea, and God's wind swept over the waters. God said, Let there be light, and so light appeared. God saw how good the light was. God separated the light from the darkness. God named the light day and the darkness night. There was evening and there was morning, the first day. God said, Let there be a dome in the middle of the waters to separate the waters from each other. God made the dome and separated the waters under the dome from the waters above the dome. And it happened in that way. God named the dome sky. There was evening and there was morning, the second day. God said, let the waters under the sky come together into one place so that the dry land can appear. And that's what happened. God named the dry land earth and he named the, wa the gathered waters seas. God saw how good it was. God said, let the earth grow plant life, plants yielding seeds and fruit trees bearing fruit with seeds inside it, each according to its kind throughout the earth. And that's what happened. The earth produced plant life, plants yielding seeds, each according to its kind, and trees bearing fruit with seeds inside it, each according to its kind. God saw how good it was. There was evening and there was morning, the third day. God said, let there be light in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will mark events sacred seasons, days, and years. There will be lights in the dome of the sky to shine on the earth. And that's what happened. God made the stars and the two great lights, the larger light to rule over the day and the smaller light to rule over the night. God put them in the dome of the sky to shine on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. God saw how good it was. There was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. God said, Let the waters swarm with living things, and let birds fly above the earth, up in the dome of the sky. God created the great sea animals, and all the tiny living things that swarm in the waters, each according to its kind, and all the winged birds, each according to its kind. God saw how good it was. Then God blessed them. Be fertile and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. There was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. God said, Let the earth produce every kind of living thing, livestock, crawling things, and wildlife. And that's what happened. God made every kind of wildlife, every kind of livestock, and every kind of creature that crawls on the ground. God saw how good it was. Then God said, Let us make humanity in our image to resemble us, 
so that they may take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and all the crawling things on earth. God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them. Male and female, God created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fertile and multiply. Fill the earth and master it. Take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, and everything crawling on the ground. Then God said, I now give to you all the plants on earth that yield seeds, and all the trees whose fruit produces its seeds within it. These will be your food. To all wildlife, to all the birds in the sky, and to everything crawling on the ground, to everything that breathes, I give all the green grasses for food. And that's what happened. God saw everything he had made. It was supremely good. There was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The heavens and the earth and all who live in them were completed. On the sixth day, God completed all the work that he had done, and on the seventh day, God rested from all the work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all the work of creation. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. On the day the Lord God made earth and sky. Here ends the reading. One of my favorite books is The Hobbit by um, J.R.R. Tolkien. And uh, along with it, the, the, uh, its companion book, The Lord of the Rings, uh, or books, I suppose, The Lord of the Rings, which, of course, are very well-known and very popular. When, uh, when my daughter was very young, I would read to her every night um, from The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings uh, for a long time, and it was uh, a very important bonding for us. There's, a, there's another book that Tolkien wrote um, that is less well-known called The Silmarillion. And uh, Tolkien, who was, uh, first of all, a devout Christian, devout Anglican, and secondly, um, very interested in mythology and, and the history of the Anglo-Saxons and um, the peoples of Europe, he created uh, not only this world and all the languages spoken and all the peoples in it, but he also created an entire mythology, an entire belief system uh, around which it all it all worked. And of course, in his world, um, uh, the story of the Silmarillion is told from the the, the position of the elves. Uh, and the elves, of course, in his world, have met the people that that <laughs> that he discusses. They, they've they've had firsthand contact with them. The Silmarillion is a uh, extremely dense and um, dry read. I've, I uh, I haven't actually completed it. I'm about halfway through. But the uh, the thing that gets me about it is that it starts with a creation story. And I I find in that creation story so many of the elements we, we hear in the story of Genesis. In Tolkien's creation story, there is a being, uh, Iluvatar, who is God. And uh, Iluvatar begins by creating... Um, the Ainur, who are uh, effectively the the choir of angels. And uh, Iluvatar then begins to sing, and it's through music and song 
that um, the creation comes into existence. And the Ainur who are listening to the song begin to, to join in in the creation. They begin to add their own elements to the song. And they all sing together. And then one of them, uh, Melkor, who is, uh, ne is next highest in power only to Ilavatar himself, uh, decides that he really wants to be in control of this song of creation. And he begins to try and lead the song the way that he wants it to go. He begins to try and, uh, and take control of the song away from Ilavatar. And uh, of course, Ilavatar notices that he's doing this and, and he uh, changes the song and, and, and uh, controls the flow such that Melkor is not able to, to, uh, uh, to get what he wants in the end. But, but, in doing, but in doing so, Melkor has corrupted the song. And then the song ends, and the Ainu are all excited uh, about the song, and Ilavatra says, now I will, I will create a world from the song that you've sung. And then, after the song is finished, then he creates this world, and the Ainu are, uh, are able to go into the world and, and experience it. Um, it's a very interesting creation story, and like I said, it, it very much parallels what we have in Genesis, in a way. In the story from the Silmarillion, we have the song, the world is created in song. And in Genesis, we have language. In Genesis, it's very clear that God creates the world through spoken word. Uh, God speaks, and uh, it is it's done just that way that God wants it. In the same way, in the story of the Silmarillion, there are actors who, who uh, want to make things their own way. And God gives them the ability, Ilvatar gives them the ability to do that, to make their own choices and, to, and to, to do their own thing. And yet, in the end, they are still brought back by the will of Ilvatar, by the will of God. This, um, this reading from Genesis is very famous, extremely famous. Uh, of course, anyone who picks up uh, a Christian Bible uh, that, that includes the Old Testament and the New Testament, this is the first thing they usually read, because if you open to the very beginning, this is the first, the first page you get. Um, this this uh, section has brought about so many discussions in the past, so much uh, political commentary, uh, so many uh, strong feelings. It, it has evoked all kinds of things from people. I think it, it's very easy to look at this reading and to take it kind of in one of two ways. Some folks will definitely take it as history, as fact, and they'll think about um, God having created the world in, in six days and resting on the seventh, and about the order of creation brought about by God in, in, in Genesis, and they'll see that as being... Um, historically true, historically accurate, exactly the way that it was done. And others will look at this, uh, at these verses, and they will see it as mythology. They'll see it as the creation of uh, the Israelite people in their own context, uh, in, within the, the traditions of the Near East, um, of Babylonia, and of Assyria, and of Mesopotamia, and um, 
the Akkadians and the Sumerians, and they and they will say, oh, this is you know uh, mythology. This is an under, you know a way for the for for the Israelites to understand their place in the universe. And there have been arguments between these two groups for hundreds of years now. Um, really, I think since in in uh, in earnest since um, the Enlightenment, when we began to think about how could uh, science, what could science teach us about the world and about the structure of the world, and uh, in the last fifty years, especially, um, or maybe maybe a little longer, maybe 70 years, this has become a very charged issue in the church. And there are certain groups who feel very strongly about it and other groups who feel very strongly about the opposite idea. Some people very, feel very strongly it's historical. Some people feel very strongly it's mythology. Um, one of the interesting ideas that's around these days uh, is this idea of the flat earth. That the Earth is not actually around, which of course, um, you know, we've we've been to outer space, we've seen the Earth, we know it's round. People have known it's round um, for thousands of years based on observation. But there are still this group of people who really believe the Earth is flat. And when you engage with these folks and really try to understand their perspective, and, and you know, not not immediately from um, a place of of um, of you know. Uh, of ridiculousness or unbelieving, but really try to understand why they think this. Uh, time and time again, it falls back to well, if this is not true, then the then the story of the of the creation in Genesis is not true. Therefore, the Bible is not true. And I think that that's an idea that is that is really um, stuck with people. There there are. Uh, folks in the church who really feel that if this story of Genesis is not factually true, historically true, word for word as it said, then the entire Bible must be false. And then, of course, on the other side, there are there are folks who will say, "Well, it, this doesn't matter. It's an ancient piece of Mesopotamian literature. Um, we shouldn't put any credence to it at all. It's just it's just mythology. It's just a story." You know, there are lots of people in this part of the world creating similar stories. And in fact, you know, if you look, you can see the, you can see bits and pieces of other Mesopotamian creation myths um, from the Akkadians and the Sumerians and stuff mixed in with this, with this story. But I think that both points of view kind of miss the point. I, th I think they, they both fail to see uh, the uniqueness of the story in its context, in its setting, and what um, the story is trying to tell us, what Genesis is trying to tell us about the nature of God and about the nature um, of, our, of reality and about the nature of our relationship with God. You know, um, it's true that if you look at this story and you compare it with other Near Eastern myths about uh, the creation of the world, you'll find lots of similarities. And that shouldn't be surprising to us. The the um, Israelites, when they when they wrote these this story down, they were surrounded by the other peoples in their in their area, and of course they're going to pull on that previous knowledge and the previous storytelling to um, to explain uh, how 
they are related to God, what their relationship with God is. But to think of this as pure mythology is to say that it is it is not really distinct from other creation stories uh, in the world. And to say that it's purely historical is to say that um, you know science and, and our understanding of, of the world that we can come to through our God-given reason is also incorrect. And though what we need to do instead is kind of work the middle middle path. I think what was unique here about the the Israelites as they grappled with this idea of you know how did the world come into being is they wanted to say something theologically true. They wanted to say something spiritually true, something true about the nature of God, something that was unique to them in their time, which is that there is one God and that God created the universe and is separate from it. That God is the creator and, and we are the creation. In the story, in Genesis, we hear that God is creating all these various these various things and that after God creates each one of them, God says it is good. God really is happy with the creation. And then God says, let us create human beings in our, in our likeness so that they can take care of the world. So that they can take care of the world. And I think that's kind of the, the important, the important part of this, you know, one, one view of, of this says is kind of the materialistic view. The view that the world is is all we, is only what we can see, and there's nothing more to it, and therefore, if we can't see it, if we can't prove it in that way, then it must not be true. And the other view is um, this mythological view that uh, the world is, that what we see and what we can discover can never be true because the only truth is what comes from God, and really, it's it's in between, right? Things can be theologically true, they can be spiritually true, without being literally true, without being historically true in the way that we think of history now. And certainly, um, you know, I don't believe that when the, the authors of Genesis wrote Genesis down, that they thought this was exactly what happened necessarily. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. But I think that wasn't the point of the story. The point of, of, of Genesis is not to say this is how it did and there's no other way it could be. The point is is to show us the relationship between God as creator and us as creation. And that relationship is a covenantal relationship. And this this is really so, so um, key. The text is saying that the nature of reality itself is covenantal. And what do we mean by covenantal here? Um, what we mean is that it is created, and we are its create. We are the creation of the Creator, right? We exist only because God created us, and yet God wants our uh, our co-creation of the universe. God has uniquely given us the ability to help co-create reality, um, and I think the text also kind of puts this in frame in a in a frame of reference of language and spoken word. You know, language and spoken word makes us different uh, than than uh, all the other animals on earth. And there's certainly arguments that there are communication systems and and things 
for other animals, but nothing like human language. And so, you know, the, the text is saying that God has created us, and yet God wants his creation to be involved in overseeing the creation, in, in taking care of the creation, in being the, the caretaker and the, and the, the uh, co-creator of, of the world. Much as in, in Tolkien's story, Ilavatar invites the Ainur to help create the song, even though the Ainur are themselves created. And just like in that story, this story points out the fact that, in this course of we read Genesis even more, we see it again and again, that even though we we have are, are, are given by God the the ability to rebel, the ability to to make our own decisions, we that we are not being deterministically, um, you know, uh, uh, directed by God, that we are allowed um, to make our own decisions to, and to to you know come to our own conclusions. And, and in that way, be co-creators of, of the creation with God, that nonetheless, everything eventually bends to the will of God. That it doesn't matter, um, well, not that it doesn't matter what we do, but that whatever we do eventually will come and be, uh, come around and be uh, brought into the service of God. This is, in fact, one of the core tenets of Christian universalism, that even if we as individuals resist God saving grace, resist, uh, resist God and, and push God away, we eventually will, will no longer be able to do so because we will realize uh, eventually that we are harming ourselves and we'll, you know, eventually we'll come to understand the, the reality of the world and, and come to understand that, that, um, that it's in our best interests to, uh, to bend our own will uh, to God's will, even if that happens long after we've, we've died, that God will have the the final say, the final ability to save everyone. That's that's really a um, you know a core idea of Christian universalism, and we see it here in in creation. We see it with God uh, creating everything. You know, with, um, without God, there is nothing. And so, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? What is what does that mean to us in our daily lives? I think this is a really important point. I think this is, this is really core to this story. And we see it throughout the rest of Genesis where uh, God has a plan for the, for the created order. You know, in, this, in these verses, we see that, it, that according to this, every, you know, all of the beasts and, and, and uh, humankind are all uh, meant to be vegetarians, for example. So God has an, has an idea for the created order. And then um, that, uh, thanks to the intervention of human beings who are given the ability to make their own decisions and to, and to, to alter that creation and are given care over that creation, uh, things go, go awry. <laughs> things go not all according to God's plan uh, in, you know, in the creation or original creation. But nonetheless, that co-creation is, is, is again and again and again brought back um, to serve the will of God. And so must, must our will, must our existence be eventually brought back to serve the will of God. To be created in the image of God means that all human beings, whether we get along with them, whether we agree with them, they are all carrying this image of God within them. They are all created in the image of God. They are all beloved by God. They are all given 
part of the creation, given a role in the creation to help co-create along with God. Their ideas and opinions and, um, and beliefs have, have meaning and have importance, um, that we shouldn't just treat them as, as if they're insignificant. We have to, to listen to them and, and work with them and see in them the image of God treat them as we want to be treated ourselves. So, as you go out and you experience the world this week, think about that. Think about what it means to be created in the image of God. Think about it with when Genesis says that God saw all the creation and said it is, um, it is extremely good. Not just good, but extremely good. God was very happy with the creation. And in that same way, God is very happy with you as as God's creation. Even when you turn against God, even when you uh, forget God, even when you feel like you're all alone and there's nobody there and that God has abandoned you, God still loves you. God still sees you as part of God's beloved creation. Don't forget that. Amen.